So here we go. Uh, from this text, I've been drawing out truths about the church uh, with the hope that we would, we would gain a better understanding of the church, what it really is, and hopefully what, you know, what it's not because people are confused, and also with that better understanding, a better appreciation of the church. And I, like I said, I'm going to wrap up the study today, and in order to do that, I'm not going to be able to review what we've covered in the last three sessions. So if you weren't here for any of that, I would just encourage you to go back online and hopefully listen to that, and that way you might be able to fill in the blanks uh, this morning if there are blanks. So let's first read the text, and then we're going to just jump in where we left off last week. How are you guys? I'm looking right at you. Thank you for sitting in the front row, because no one ever does, so I appreciate that. (laughs) But don't fall asleep on me, because that's hard on me when you do that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Here's the word of God. As you come to him, the apostle Peter writes, a living stone, writing to the churches, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beautiful. It's beautiful. So we've covered verses 4 and 5 and. I actually have a lot uh, for you to try to digest this morning, and so just bear with me. I hope your thinking caps are on. I hope you got enough sleep last night. You're going to need it. So we've covered verses 4 and 5, and uh, in verses 6 through 10, which is what we're basically going to be looking at this morning, I believe basically what's happening there is Peter is expanding upon what he already said in verses 4 and 5. He's just expanding. He's adding, okay? So it'll just add to what we've already learned in 4 and 5. So in verse 4, Peter says, I just read it, to his Christian readers that the stone that is Jesus is rejected by men. Is rejected by men. Not by all men, obviously. Not by all men. I mean, he was writing, obviously, to those who believe in Christ, right? But Peter means mankind in general. Mankind in general reject Jesus Christ. And in Peter's day, as it is in ours, certainly, Christian belief was a minority viewpoint. I don't know if you realize that. We're in the minority for believing in Christ. Even, I would say, within the United States now. But in contrast to those who reject the stone, Peter says... In the sight of God, the stone is chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. Think about that. Here's mankind. How do they view Christ? In rejection, with rejection. 
in unbelief. How does God Almighty, the creator of the universe, view Christ? As the chosen and precious stone. One writer says that the human and divine viewpoints are often at variance. They see things differently, right? But never more intensely or severely than in the appraisal of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so true, beloved. Think about that for a moment. You, you can get some agreement with people who are outside of Christ in the area of morality, right? They'll agree with you. They'll, they'll agree and say, and they'll agree with God in this way, that murder is wrong, right? That stealing is wrong. That lying is wrong. Yeah, right? But when you bring up Jesus Christ, wow, that is where you see a variance of opinion and a strong one, right? Introduce Jesus Christ into the topic of your local water cooler discussion at, when you're at work. Introduce him and see the reactions, right? They're fine with you talking about, really, often, anything else other than the Lord. Men may reject him, but God sees things differently than rebellious mankind. And I would say it would make the most sense to align yourself with the way God sees things, right? Rather than the sinful world around us. So concerning what is stated in verse 4, Peter then, in verses 6 through 8, draws out three prophetic passages about Christ from the Old Testament that all center on the concept of Christ as the stone and humanity's response to the stone and the significant consequences of those responses. He draws these from Isaiah and Psalms, Isaiah and Psalms. So you could say what we have in these verses, 6 through 8, is really a description of those who are inside and those who are outside of the church, or those united to the cornerstone of the church by faith and those who are not because they have rejected the chosen and precious stone in sinful, rebellious unbelief. And that's why I said it was so important. You know, I've been telling you over and over again, the church is not a building in the sense of a physical building, right? Because then you could actually think just because you're here or associating with it that you are part of the church. No. You must be attached to the cornerstone of the church, the spiritual house of God, to be part of the church, truly, to be united with it and to be in align with God and his views. So 1 Peter 2.6, now let's look at it. It says, therefore, it stands in Scripture. Now he's going to bring out these passages. Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay? So this is the first response to the stone, and it is the right one. It is the right one. This prophetic passage from Isaiah looks forward to the chosen and precious cornerstone, that is, the cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ, who would be the salvation of anyone who would trust in him, of anyone, Jew, Gentile, anyone. And all who would believe and trust in him, the chosen and precious stone of God, 
would be saved, and therefore they would never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. One writer explaining that comment, be put to shame, says this, they will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. The phrase will not be put to shame is another way of saying they will be honored. They will be honored. Now, certainly, this would have been an encouragement to the persecuted church or the group of Christians that Peter was writing to. Remember, we talked about that. These were Christians suffering primarily for their faith, for the profession of Jesus Christ, for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this is really just a, a strong word of encouragement to them. Unbelievers may try to shame you or disgrace or dishonor you, But in the end, you, Christian church, will be honored along with Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone of the church. And they, the unbelievers, because of their rejection of the stone, will be dishonored. Reversal of fortunes. Now, verses 7 and 8, here Peter elaborates on or further develops for us mankind's rejection of the stone that he mentions in verse 4. That is a living stone rejected by men, mankind. And here he says, beginning in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, all the Christ rejectors, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling or a stumbling stone, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I have this in my notes, and I think I have time, so I'm going to try to cover it, because it might be something that you have or that you see in your translation. I'm using, using the English Standard Version. But it's a quick note, uh, and you might have another translation, or you may have seen it a different way, but it's a quick note concerning the first part of verse 7. So stick with me here. Just some technical stuff, but it's important, I think, um, because you might have a question about it. It has been translated, the first part of 1 Peter 2.7, it has been translated generally in one or two ways, one or two ways. Either, as I just read it, as the ESV has translated it, so the honor is for you who believe. Okay? Which, by the way, flows quite naturally from what Peter said at the end of verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Okay? Similarly, the, another translation, good translation of the Bible, the HCSB, translates verse 7, the first part, like this. So honor will come to you who believe. Okay? Again, flowing right out of what he just said in verse 6 you will not be put to shame. Rather, you will receive honor, church, all right? But the other way the phrase has been translated is this way. So you who believe see his value. Uh, That is Christ. That's how the NAT translates it. And that's basically referring to the way the stone is seen or perceived by the readers in contrast to the way 
Those who reject it see it. In other words, the Christian sees the great value of Christ. That is another way to translate it. Similarly, another translation, very popular, and that's why I bring it up, is the NIV. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious, this stone is precious, and the New King James Bible, which was also very popular, it says, and therefore, to you who believe he is precious, okay? So two different ways to translate it. One's talking about honor that the Christians are going to receive. The other one is talking about how the Christians perceive Christ, seeing him as valuable. And depending on which way you go, you preach differently. Because I could tell you right now, listen, Christians, true Christians, perceive Christ as precious, as valuable, right? Is that true? Certainly that's true. But is that, is that what Peter's saying? Or is Peter referring to the honor that Christians will receive because they are united with Christ who will be honored by God the Father in the end? Well, why even the two different translations? And I just want to help you through this a little bit. Here's why. The noun that is being translated, either honor or value or precious, well, it, could, it can be translated in one or two ways. It can, either, it can refer to either the worth that one ascribes to someone or something, such as honor, respect, or it can also be used to speak of the value of someone or something such as I see that, in this case, see the value in Christ. So it, it could go either way. And beyond that, the phrase in the original reads like this, the original manuscripts. It reads like this. So to you is the noun, honor or value, who believe. So to you is the honor who believe, or so to you who is, is the value who believe. That's a little ambiguous. It's not super clear. This is why the two translations. But let me say this. It's difficult to choose, but I would lean because of the immediate context, verse 6, and even the verses that follow, and the way the noun is used other places in the New Testament, I think the ESV translation has it right. Understanding it is honor that is reserved for the Christian because of his union with Christ. One commentator Commenting on verse 7, also seeing it that way, simply says, Since Christ is honored by God, so will all who participate in Christ. Okay? So there was a little bit of translation uh, explanation. Now, another thing you might have seen that stood out to you in in this verse, and you thought, what is it it talking about, was the word builders. Look back at the text. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is that about? Who are the builders? This exact phrase, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, is used in Matthew 21, 42 by our Lord Jesus Christ, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 by the Apostle Peter. And both Jesus and Peter in those verses clearly indicate that the builders are the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders of Israel, who, as we know, incited the nation to crucify Jesus. To crucify Jesus. One writer, think about, I mean, just think about that. These are the religious leaders, the, quote, builders, 
And these are the ones who have rejected the very cornerstone of the building. Think about how ironic that is. Think about how sad that is. One writer says this, the religious leaders believe they are building God's building, the religious leaders of Israel, but they have rejected the cornerstone for the entire edifice. (laughs) How utterly foolish, right? How utterly foolish. But beloved, sin turns us into fools. It turns us into fools. It turns us against God. And in their sin and rebellion, they rejected the very cornerstone of the building that they were claiming to be building. Now concerning verse 8, here is another translation of that verse that I, I find or found helpful to rightly understand it. And uh, let's just look at that real quick. This is the, the verse 8. It says, it is a stone, that is Christ, that causes people to trip. It is a rock that makes them fall. That's a good way to translate this passage. They trip and fall because they do not obey the message. What is the message? It's the gospel. It's the word that presents to people the living stone that tells them about Jesus Christ. goes on to say that is also what God Plan for them. It is a stone that causes people to trip. It is a rock that makes them fall. Remember here, we have in these passages, Peter's drawing out, he's just expanding upon this rejection, and he's talking more about that rejection of the cornerstone. But here, this, this stone, this rock, is a rock that actually causes people to trip. How's that? Well, One writer says this, they're stumbling over the cornerstone, remember that big gigantic rock of the foundation, laid on the foundation, is not accidental as humans often trip unintentionally while walking. In this instance, humans stumble because of rebellion. I want you to get the picture here. In other words, there is no avoiding this rock. They come up against the rock. They reject the rock but they do not leave without any damage for their rejection. This rock will cause them to trip to their doom. They'll either, in faith, rest themselves on this rock in the church and be saved, or they will reject this rock, and this rock will cause them to stumble to eternal damnation. I want you to think about that. One writer, thinking about that and drawing on that, he said this, that Peter, as does the rest of the New Testament, does not consider an encounter with the gospel a casual affair. It is a matter of life and death. I heard this said once, and it was explained to me, and I understood it better, that For the unbeliever, the church can be, as they're gathered together, sitting with the body of Christ, a life-saving place or a very dangerous place, depending on how they respond to the gospel that is proclaimed. So 
Week after week we come, we present Jesus Christ, we call you unto repentance and salvation. We say, believe and be saved and escape the wrath to come. You cannot just continue to ignore that or resist it without dire consequences. You can't just cast him aside. He stands there, Jesus Christ, the great rock, and calls you to come unto him and find security and peace and rescue from the wrath to come. But if you, in sinful rebellion and pride and arrogance, choose not to come and bow before that rock, you will be tripped by that rock unto your utter doom. Jesus is both great salvation and great judge of all those who reject him. And so we, I plead with you week after week in a group this size, there is no doubt in my mind there are those who continue to cast him aside, to push him off. That is a dangerous proposition for you. In the end, you will trip over him and stumble to your doom. But you need not do that. Cry out to him. Come before him in humility and ask him to save you. And this stumbling stone will be your saving stone, the great cornerstone of your life. Repent before it's too late. The gospel is a serious matter, beloved. It is a matter of life and death. Now, concerning the last phrase of verse 8, there's some debate over this. But I'll tell you how I understand it. There, Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so immediately, people want to know, destined to do what? Destined to stumble, destined to disobey. Which one? Is God destining people to stumble? Or is it a destination? Is he determining uh, this disobedience? Which is it? Well, the New American Standard Bible, a very good translation of the Bible, they add a word in, to their, uh, that's not found in the original, but they're, it's again, it's a translation. It's in italics in the New American Standard Bible to let you know that it's a word they added to help you understand what they believe Peter is communicating. And I, I would agree with their translation. It says there in 1 Peter 2.8 in the New American Standard Bible, for they stumble, that is those who have rejected the cornerstone, because they are disobedient to the word, the word about Christ, the message about him. And to this doom, doom, that's the word added, doom, they were also appointed to this doom. In other words, to this stumbling, to this ultimate destruction for those who disobey Christ. One writer puts it this way, rejection of Jesus Christ is fatal and is connected with disobeying the message of God's word. To disobey the message is to reject it, and to obey it is to believe. All who do not receive Christ as their Savior will one day Face him as their judge. That's the warning. That's the warning. It doesn't have to be that way if if you would only repent. 
Because of sin, all disobedient unbelievers are destined for a stumbling which will lead to eternal condemnation. There's no escaping it if one will not repent, if one continues in the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, there are people who continue to uh, associate with the church, continue even to attend services, continue even to go to Bible studies, and yet they're still rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not submitted to him yet. They have not given their lives to him. That's why I'm saying these things. There's probably, there, I have no doubt there's some of you right here, sitting here right now, hearing what I'm saying. And I'm speaking right to you right now. Another writer says, unbelievers receive the exact judgment their sinful choice demands. To this doom they were also appointed because they do not believe and obey the gospel. God does not actively destine people to unbelief, but he does appoint judgment, doom, on every unbeliever. Serious matter, beloved, a serious matter. So for those who are here and do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to seriously consider these things. We say this generally every week. We're right here after the end of the service. We would love to talk with you, speak to you about the Lord Jesus Christ in more detail and tell you how you can be saved. It's not difficult. You must repent and turn to him in faith. You must put your trust in him, recognizing that if you don't, you are doomed. You are doomed. Judgment awaits you. You are right now under the wrath of God, and it's only the mercy of God that you're not in hell right now. His patience, his long-suffering, his his calling unto you through his word, it's here for you to take. But if you refuse, if you continue in your way, you are destined for damnation. It's a serious matter, beloved. Now, listen. In verses 9 and 10, we talked about the unbeliever, but in contrast with those who have rejected the cornerstone are those who have trusted in him, okay? And by faith been united with Christ in his church, a spiritual house, the house made up of believers who together love, trust in, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says, Peter's description concerning verses 9 and 10 of the church, it comes to a climax in these two verses, and it certainly does. Just a beautiful text, beloved, right here, verses 9 and 10. Truly a a wonderful and beautiful description of the church that is worth repeatedly meditating on. It is a description that encourages and challenges. And now I'm speaking to you believers. To be a part of the church, to be a part of the redeemed people of God is as we shall see, is a tremendous blessing, privilege, and responsibility. Responsibility. So let's look at that now. All right? Look back at verses 9 and 10. We'll read those again. But you, it's plural, not speaking to individuals, to Peter's Christian readers who existed in various local churches, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, plural again, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, this is going to be fun. This is just a beautiful text to, to work through and, and preach, certainly. Verse 9 contains four designations for the church worth, worth our consideration, worth us contemplating continually. The first one, you see it there, a chosen race. A chosen race. The word chosen, beloved, reminds us of what we talked about in Romans at length, that the church is made up of the elect of God. That is, all those that God, before the foundation of the world, predetermined predetermined to sovereignly save according to his great mercy and grace. One writer says, the title chosen race, it stresses God's loving initiative in bringing the church to himself. It's his work. He did it. He elected. He determined. He drew people from among sinful humanity unto himself into his church. And he's continuing to do that. Praise be to God. The Apostle Paul speaks about this sovereign choice of God in Ephesians. And just to remind you, there it says, another beautiful text in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, writing to the church in Ephesus, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, his sovereign will, to the praise of his glorious great grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is Jesus. So that's chosen. But what about the word race? Well, the word translated race in the ESV is translated people. It can also be translated people in the, as it is in the NIV, a chosen people, a chosen race. Both are fine. But the Greek word implies a people with a common heritage. A people with a common heritage. Now, think about this. The church is made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In other words, it is a very diverse group of people, different in many ways, right? However, this chosen race all have one very important thing in common. They have all been born again of the Spirit of God and adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. That is their great common heritage. As one writer says, because of its spiritual birth, the new race transcends all natural distinctions of ancestry, languages, or cultures. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The church is a beautiful drawing out from every tongue, tribe, nation, unto himself, brought together, having one common heritage, being children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit. Two, the church is a royal priesthood. So it's a chosen race, it's a royal priesthood. The church is not only a priesthood, as Peter said in verse 4, but here he adds the word royal. Royal. What do you think of when you hear the word royal? Good, huh? Good? I mean, good, right? On some level, 
Well, what does it mean here? I understand it to mean that the church is a priesthood with royal rights or privileges because of its union with Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings. One writer says they are priests with a royal heritage. Another says it is a priesthood consisting of kings. They not only serve God, the church, we not only serve God as priests, but we will also rule with Christ in his kingdom, beloved. That's the church. You see how significant it is? We will rule with Christ in his kingdom, serving as priests with royal rights and privileges. This is in the scriptures. We've seen it when we went through our Revelation study, or as we're still going through it. But here, I'll remind you, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, which is, is the title deed to the earth, and to open its seals, speaking of Christ, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? Reign. They shall reign on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years, speaking specifically of the millennial kingdom on earth. Reign, which turns into the eternal kingdom, so it's the eternal reign with Christ. Reign, rule, king. And queens, if you like. Second Timothy 2, 10 through 12. There the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He knows there's people that God has called and chosen before the foundation of the world. And he continues to preach the gospel that they may all come here and come to Christ. That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Reign, beloved, with the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The church is not only a chosen race, a royal priesthood, but it is a holy nation. A holy nation. Generally speaking, the word holy just basically means set apart. Set apart. Okay? The church then is a nation or a people united together through saving faith in Christ who have been set apart by God for his own purposes. Set apart by God for his own purposes. Set apart from this fallen world to do God's will. Set apart to be instruments of his righteousness. Yes? Yeah, that's what we learned in Romans. One writer says, in light of that, the church's position of separation demands that the members must not stoop to the sinful practices of the world. We're set apart for a reason, for a purpose, that we might live for God and no longer live for ourselves, that we might live for his righteousness and manifest that through the power of the spirit that he has given us when we were born again. No longer using our bodies, our minds, our hands, our feet as instruments of unrighteousness. 
No longer delighting ourselves in the sins of this fallen world. We're set apart. We are to be different. I've said it a million times. He didn't just save you to get you out of hell. That is a great benefit. Glorious. But he saved us that we might be his instruments here on this earth and that we might magnify him and glorify him as a church. Four. Okay? So we have, what do we have so far? We have uh, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Here's the last description. A people for his own possession. That's beautiful. The church belongs exclusively to God. This is another area where we'll, you know, we'll say it's my church. It's so, you know, we get it. We talk like that. Just like I said, we use the word church in a way that probably it's not biblically accurate, but we probably, hopefully we understand what it really means when we speak of the church biblically. We say the same thing, I'm going to my church. Okay, but it's probably good every once in a while to, just to remind ourselves it's not ours, it's God's. We are his. We are his. The church is God's treasured private possession. He has purchased it for himself with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Those who seek to harm the church, seek, think about it, seek to harm what belongs to God. Huh? Here's a funny side note I wanted to tell you. The original King James Version which was the Bible for some time, uh, for, many, for many people, the original King James Version put the phrase in verse 9 like this. It said, but you are a holy nation. Okay, holy nation. Then after that it said, a peculiar people. Peculiar. When you think of peculiar, what do you think of? Yeah. So there's probably truth to that. Uh, but actually... The reason it doesn't say peculiar anymore in our translations is because the word has morphed over time from what it originally meant. The, Peter is not saying Christians are strange or the church is odd. Okay? I know some, like I said, some people, I don't know, you see some denominations, they're like, that is strange, that is odd. Well, of course, we're peculiar people. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, listen, this is just uh, something you should be aware of. The word peculiar back in the 15th century, it originally meant this, belonging exclusively to one person. That's what it meant. It, 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 it came from Latin, and it would be used to refer to uh, one's own property, private property, private property. That's what it meant. It came to mean, words morph, just so you know. The languages change. They, it evolves. Language evolves. It changes over time. It came to mean particular to oneself, something particular to oneself. Instead of private property, it's just something particular to oneself, and then particular to a group. So peculiar was used 15th, later on. It was used to describe the word idiom uh, this way, form of speech peculiar to a people or place, like southern folk. They have idioms, or anybody, they, they might have idioms, something that is that is said there that's not said anywhere else among them. So it was used that way, peculiar. Now it's no longer talking about private property, but something that belongs to a group of people. It then morphed further and became 
something that was not the norm but unusual, and then a little more further, and it just became something that was odd, curious, or strange. Peculiar. So that is why the King James Version uh, had to be, that word need to be changed. Peculiar was a word that m- worked back then, but it no longer works now because if you look at the Greek word, it is referring to a private possession. And we, the church, are God's private possession. Just interesting, you can, you know, uh, impress your friends with your knowledge. <laughs> Continuing to look, almost done. Continuing to look at this beautiful description of the church. 1 Peter 2.9 Look back at it again. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, wonderful, fantastic, great privilege, great honor. Something great to look forward to. We're going to reign with him. He, then he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Beloved, the word translated proclaim, listen, the word translated proclaim, it means to announce with a focus on the extent to which the announcement or proclamation extends. What do I mean? So the idea is to proclaim throughout. It's not just proclaim, proclaim throughout, to make widely known. The you, as I mentioned before, is plural. So it's all the church. All, the entire church, is to proclaim, to make him known throughout. Some people, Christians, think, you know, the proclamation part of telling people about Christ and so on and so forth, that's for a few. No, it's for you all. It's for the church. It is the church that has been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. They are to proclaim now, make him widely known to all. God chose us, the church, to be his people, and he mercifully, think about it, rescued us from our spiritual ignorance, which is darkness, that we would declare to all the world, this is God's purpose, that we would declare to all the world his excellencies, that is his greatness, his goodness, his virtues, his outstanding qualities, his grace, his mercy, his saving love. The church remains in the world in order to make our great God known to this world. Hello. Otherwise, why are we here? Just take us home, God. We are here to proclaim him, to make him known. One writer says, God's purpose in saving us is to reveal himself to others through us. And beloved, when you think about proclaim, it's not, listen, it's not just, well, I'll live, a, I'll live a Christian life. Certainly, you must do that. We're called to do that. But the proclamation speaks of making him known through words. Huh? Telling people about the great God who has rescued you and saved you. Telling people what you know about Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to know everything the Bible says. Can you imagine? If you waited until that was true, you may never proclaim him then. You don't need to. People feel like they need to. You don't. Tell people what you know. 
Proclaim his greatness and see what the Lord will do. And when someone asks you one of those difficult questions you don't know, you say, I don't know. And then you research it and you come back to them with an answer and then you proclaim him again. You see, we complicate this a little too much. Proclaim him. Finally, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I like what one commentator says concerning this passage. He says, Peter believed it was good for believers occasionally to remember what they once were. It should deepen their gratitude for what they now are. God's people. They have been lifted so high as to have become not merely people, but the people of God, belonging to him and acknowledged by him. Beloved, we are a people who have received God's mercy. His mercy. And I thought I would close on this passage. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. This is a familiar text for many. Mercy, beloved. Undeserved compassion from God. Not merited, not earned. The people of God are those who have received his mercy. How does one receive the mercy of God? He cries out for it. And finds it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mercy. Rather than wrath and condemnation, he receives salvation. Forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ, mercy. I want to close with this. Luke 18. Jesus also told this parable to some, he, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a religious leader of the day. And the other a tax collector, that was the considered low, low, low in society, a traitor to his people, collecting money from them for the Roman government, Jewish people collecting money from their, their own people for the Roman government who was oppressing them. So two men, so you see the, the, the differences. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee held high in society, the other one very low. And the other a tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself, so he's in the temple, prayed, here he is, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look at that poor, pathetic excuse for a human being. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, right? Proud, arrogant. This man doesn't need mercy, I guess, right? Because he's got it all together. Wrong. Pride has blinded him to the mercy that he needs. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beloved, that 
is how one receives the mercy of God and becomes the people of God. Notice what Jesus says. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, right with God, declared right with God because he cried out to God for his mercy rather than the other, the Pharisee, who thought he had it all together, who was self-righteous, thought he didn't need salvation. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're here today and you've never cried out for God's mercy, you've never sought salvation in Jesus Christ, humble yourself. Humble yourself and do it today that God might exalt you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beauty, the glory, the wonder that is the church. Thank you for the great privilege, Father, of of making us who are yours part of the church, uniting us together. Thank you for the the wonder. Thank you for even the responsibility that we have. May we recognize that you, we are here for a purpose. This is not a, a get-together social gathering so we can just say hey and, and pat each other on the back. We have been called out of this world, transferred from the darkness into your wonderful life, changed, transformed, that we, as your people, redeemed people who have tasted of your mercy, may proclaim that very mercy to those who are in such great need all around us. Proclaiming your excellencies, your marvelous virtues, your grace, your love, your mercy. Father, forgive us for failing in this area. But Father, we commit ourselves to you again and again and even now to be a people about your business. Help us to do that. And Father, for those who are here but really are outside of the church because they have not yet cast themselves upon Christ the great cornerstone, asking Him to save them, recognizing their great need because they are sinners condemned and standing guilty before you. Father, please, I pray, work now, right now in their hearts, Father, for your own glory, drawing them to yourselves. Help them as the tax collector did to fall on their faces before you and to cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we know, according to your word, that if they will do that in faith, you will save them. You will rescue them. You will change them forever. You will unite them to your blessed church. All glory be to you, God. Do your work, Father, for only you can do it. We rest in you. In Christ's name, amen.